This is the Notable Speeches Podcast. And today, an address by the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, presented recently at the annual convention of the organization National Religious Broadcasters. In this address, he warns about what he calls totalitarian democracy, which he says seeks to use the coercive power of the state to remake man and society according to an abstract ideal of perfection. The bulwarks against totalitarian democracy, he tells his audience, are religion, decentralized government, and freedom of the press. First, a bit of biographical background. Bill Barr is a native of New York City, where he was born in 1950. He attended New York's Columbia University, earning degrees in government and Chinese studies in 1973. Then after a stint at the U.S. government's Central Intelligence Agency, he went on to earn a law degree from the George Washington University School of Law. Mr. Barr served on President Ronald Reagan's domestic policy staff, then worked at the Justice Department under President George H.W. Bush, eventually serving as Mr. Bush's Attorney General. He left government service in 1993 and worked for many years in the private sector, before being nominated to again serve as U.S. Attorney General by President Donald Trump. Mr. Barr took the oath of office a little more than a year ago in February 2019. Here now is U.S. Attorney General William Barr speaking February 26, 2020 to an audience of about 500 members of the group National Religious Broadcasters meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's wonderful to be in Nashville, and I am honored uh, to be able to uh, speak with you this afternoon. Now, I trust that everyone has noticed the current intensity and pervasiveness of politics in our lives these days. It has infiltrated and overtaken nearly every aspect of life, sports, entertainment, apparel, technology, cultural associations, and of course, religion too. Even our eating habits. Politics is everywhere. It's omnipresent. Why is that? Didn't used to be that way. It seems to me that the passionate political divisions of today's world, and especially here in the United States, result from a conflict between two fundamentally different visions of the individual and the individual's relationship to the state. One vision undergirds the political system we call liberal democracy, which limits government and gives priority to preserving personal liberty. The other vision propels a form of totalitarian democracy, which seeks to submerge the individual in a collectivist agenda. It subverts individual freedom in favor of elite conceptions about what best serves the collective. In my view, liberal democracy has reached its fullest expression in the Anglo-American political system. This system is responsible for unprecedented human freedom and progress, and we providentially enjoy its blessings today. The wellsprings of this system are found in Augustinian Christianity. According to St. Augustine, as you know, 
Man lives simultaneously in two realms. Each individual is a unique creation of God with a transcendent end and eternal life in the city of God. We are created to love our creator in this world and become united with him in eternity. As Augustine writes in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. At the same time, while we work toward our eternal destiny, we live in the temporal world, the city of man. But this world is a fallen one. Man is stubbornly imperfect and prone to prey upon his fellow man. Unless there is a temporal authority capable of restraining the wicked, an authority with the power here on earth, the wicked men would overwhelm the good ones and there would be no peace. In the ancient Greek tradition, the state was a positive moral agency whose purpose was to define for men what was good and to make them so. Augustinian Christianity sharply departed from this conception. It saw the state as really a necessary evil with the limited function of keeping the peace here on earth. These foundational ideas gradually evolved into our current conception of individual dignity, personal liberty, limited government, and the separation of church and state. This process took hundreds of years and involved the amalgamation of many different influences, including those associated with Anglo-Saxon folkways, the common law, the experiences of the English Civil War, the political thought of English Whigs, the moderate enlightenment, the American Revolution, and the foundation of our great American Republic in 1789. And what has resulted from these centuries of experience is a system that takes man and society as they actually are precisely because it recognizes that man is imperfect. It does not try to use the coercive power of the state to recreate man and society wholesale. It tends to trust not revolutionary designs, but in the common virtues, customs, and institutions that were re refined over long periods of time. It puts its faith in the accumulated wisdom of the ages, over revolutionary innovations of those who aspire to be what Edmund Burke called physicians of the state. Liberal democracy recognizes that preserving broad personal freedom, including and especially the freedom to pursue one's own spiritual life and destiny, best comports with the true nature and dignity of man. It also recognizes that man is happiest in his voluntary associations, not coerced ones, and must be left free to participate in civil society, by which I mean the range of collective endeavors outside the sphere of politics. The state is not the same as the voluntary associations that make up civil society. 
To the contrary, it is the apparatus of coercive power. Under our system of liberal democracy, the role of the government is not to re remake man in society. The government has a far more modest purpose, and that is preserving the proper balance of personal freedom and order necessary for a healthy civil society and individual human flourishing. But just as this robust vision of liberal democracy came to fruition in 1789, another conflicting vision was taking shape. This has been referred to as totalitarian democracy. Its prophet was Rousseau, and its first fruit was the French Revolution. In the two centuries since, totalitarian democratic movements have emerged both on the right and on the left. Totalitarian democracy is based on the idea that man is naturally good, but has been corrupted by existing societal customs, conventions, and institutions, including religion. The path to perfection is to tear down these artifices and restore human society to this imagined natural condition. This form of democracy is messianic in that it postulates a preordained, perfect scheme of things to which men will be inexorably led. Its goals are earthly and they are urgent. Although totalitarian democracy is democratic in form, it requires an all-knowing elite to guide the masses toward their determined end. And that elite relies on whipping up mass enthusiasm to preserve its power and to achieve its goals. Totalitarian democracy is almost always secular and materialistic, and its adherents tend to treat politics as a substitute for religion. Their sacred mission is to use the power of the state to remake man and society according to an abstract ideal of perfection. The virtue of any individual is defined by whether they are aligned with that program. Whatever means are used to achieve this perfection are justified because by definition, they will quicken the pace of mankind's progress toward this earthly paradise. As one political scientist has noted, while liberal democracy conceives of people relating to many, on many different planes of existence, totalitarian democracy recognizes only one plane of existence, the political. All is subsumed within this single project. It is increasingly, as Mussolini memorably said, all within the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. While many factors have contributed to the polarized politics of today, I think one significant reason for our politics, has, why our politics have become so intense, so polarized, so ill-tempered, is that some in the so-called progressive movement have broken away from the fold of liberal democracy, 
to pursue a society more in line with the thinking of Rousseau than with the founders of our great republic. That has played a major role in our politics, becoming less like a disagreement within a family and more like a blood feud between two different clans. Over the past few decades, those further to the left have increasingly identified themselves as progressives rather than liberals. And some of these progressives have become increasingly militant and totalitarian in their style. While they seek power through the democratic process, their policy agenda has become more aggressively collectivist, socialist, and explicitly revolutionary. The crux of the progressive program is the use of the public purse to provide ever-increasing benefits to the public and thereby build a permanent political constituency of supporters who are also dependent. They want able-bodied citizens to become more dependent, subject to greater control, and increasingly supportive of this dependency. The tacit goal of this project is to convert all of us into 25-year-olds living in the government's basement, focusing our energies on obtaining a larger allowance rather than getting a job and moving out and taking responsibility for ourselves. Political philosophers since Aristotle have worried that democracies are vulnerable to just this kind of corruption. Probably the greatest chronicler of American democracy, the Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville, foresaw that American democracy would be susceptible to this development. As he described it, our society was vulnerable to a soft despotism, wherein the majority would gradually let itself be taken care of by the state, much like dependent children. Yet this process, de Tocqueville said, would be slow and almost imperceptible. The tyranny that results, he said, and I quote, does not break wills, but it softens them, bends them, and directs them. It rarely forces action, but it constantly opposes your acting. It does not destroy, it prevents birth. It does not tyrannize, it hinders, it represses, it enervates, it extinguishes, it stupefies, and finally it reduces the people to being nothing more than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which the government is the shepherd. It would be totalitarianism beneath a veneer of democratic choice. As Tocqueville summed it up, by this system, the people shake off their state of dependence just long enough to select their next master and then relapse into it again. Historically, our country has relied on a number of bulwarks against this slide toward despotism, each of which has been essential in preserving the liberty 
that has defined our democracy and this great republic. Today, I would like to discuss three institutions that have served this vital purpose. Religion, the decentralization of power, and the free press. The sad fact is that all three have eroded in recent decades. At the end of the day, if we are to preserve our liberal democracy from the meretricious appeal of socialism and the strain of progressivism that I've described, we must then turn our attention to revivifying these vital institutions. First, let me address religion. As I discussed in the speech I gave last fall at Notre Dame, while the framers believed that religion and government should be in separate spheres, they also firmly believed that religion was indispensable to sustaining our free system of government. As John Adams put it, we have no government armed with the power which is capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Tocqueville was especially emphatic on this score. He believed that religion was democracy's most powerful antidote to any tendency toward a tyrannical majority hijacking the system for despotic ends. How does religion protect against majoritarian tyranny? In the first place, it allows us to limit the role of government by cultivating internal moral values in the people that are powerful enough to restrain individual rapacity without resort to the state's coercive power. Experience teaches us that to be strong enough to control willful human beings, moral values must be based on a, an authority independent of man's will. In other words, they must flow from a transcendent supreme being. Men are far likelier to obey rules that come from God than to abide by the abstract outcome of an ad hoc utilitarian calculus. Now, these fixed moral limits did not just apply to individuals, but to political majorities as well. According to Tocqueville, in America, religion has instilled a deep sense that there are immovable limits on what a majority can impose on the minority. It was due to the influence of religion in America, he explained, that no one, and these are his words, dared to advance the maxim that everything is permitted in the interests of society. Thus, as one scholar observed, Tocqueville concluded that democracy requires citizens who believe that the rules of morality and hence the rights of their fellow citizens are not merely convenient fictions, wholly dependent on the will of men, but are instead rooted in a transcendent, immutable truth. Thus, it is safe 
to give people power to rule, but only if they believe there are moral limits on that power. Tocqueville's call to preserve this moral system is not a rejection of pluralism. It is an effort to preserve the moral and religious foundations on which a successful pluralism can exist. There is another way in which religion tends to temper the passion and intensity of political disputes. Messianic secular movements have a tendency to hubris. Their goal is to achieve a paradise here and now. Those who participate in these movements believe their goals are so noble, they tend to see their opponents as evil and believe that any means necessary to achieve their objectives are justified. That is why the most militant agents for change are entirely comfortable demonizing their opponents and are all too ready to destroy those opponents in any way they can. Now this is not to deny that religion can also lead to self-righteousness. Of course it can. But religion usually has a built-in antidote to hubris in the form of sharp warnings against presumption. In the case of Christianity, Christ repeatedly warned against self-righteousness. First, cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Judge not that ye not be judged. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, and so on and so on. There are so many of these warnings in the New Testament. Indeed, the very essence of Christ's message counsels for modesty and restraint in secular politics. The mission is not to make new men or transform the world through the use of government power. On the contrary, the central idea is that the right way to transform the world is for each of us to focus on morally transforming ourselves. Thus, unlike those who see the line between good and evil as running between them and their political opponents, the Christian outlook is expressed by Solzhenitsyn's observation that the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Religion also tempers the acrimony of our politics by making clear that what happens here on earth is only transient. Remember, man, that thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. But unfortunately, this vital moderating force in our society has declined over the past several decades. In recent years, we have seen the steady erosion of religion and its benevolent influence on our communal life. Some of this has been caused by the misinterpretation of the establishment and free exercise clauses of our Constitution by our courts. Instead of recognizing the benefits of religion to a healthy society and seeking to accommodate religion, we seem to have adopted the posture of official hostility to religion. 
This is directly contrary to the framers' views. As Dr. Benjamin Rush wrote in 1798, the only foundation for a useful education in a republic is to be laid in religion. Without it, there can be no virtue, and without virtue, there can be no liberty, and liberty is the object and life of all republican governments. While most everyone agrees that we must have separation of church and state, this does not require that we drive religion from the public square and affirmatively use government power to promote a culture of disbelief. As Tocqueville would have predicted, this weakening of religion is contributing to the ill temper of our political life. Now, the next essential check on despotism I would like to discuss is the decentralization of power. Both James Madison and Tocqueville believe that the first step toward tyranny in a democracy was the formation of a consolidated and galvanized national majority sufficiently roused by a common idea to ride roughshod over an opposing minority. Both men thought that decentralization of power reflected in the American system of federalism would help prevent the coalescence of such an energized national majority. As we all know, under our federal system, individuals are subject to two sovereigns, the national government and their state government. The framers believed in the principle of subsidiarity. That is, that matters ought to be handled by the smallest, lowest, competent authority that was closest to the people. That is, the level of government at which the individual was most empowered it is where he or she could play the largest role and have the most direct involvement. The framers conceived that the vast majority of collective decision-making by the people about their affairs would be done at the state and local level. The federal government was supposed to be of limited powers. It was primarily supposed to handle two things that had to be achieved at the national level. First, conducting foreign relations and providing for national defense. And second, integrating economic affairs across the states so that we could have a single national economy. The framers included the Commerce Clause for this second purpose, but that provision has since ballooned far beyond its original understanding. And nowadays, it is hard to tell whether a particular measure is regulating commerce to promote the integration of the nation's commerce, or whether it is simply an effort by the national government to regulate a domestic matter within a state. Sadly, most restrictions on federal power under the Commerce Clause have broken down, and virtually any federal measure can be justified no matter how much invades the prerogatives of the state. As a result, the federal government is now directly governing the country as one monolithic entity with over 300 million people. I believe that the destruction of federalism 
is another source of the extreme discontent in our contemporary political life. We have come to believe that we should have one national solution for every problem. You have a problem? Let's fix it in Washington, D.C. One size fits all. The framers would have seen a one-size-fits-all government for hundreds of millions of people, of diverse citizens, as being utterly unworkable and the straight road to tyranny. That is because they recognize that not every community is exactly the same. What works in Brooklyn might not be a good fit in Birmingham. The federal system allows for this diversity. It also enables people who do not like a certain system to move to a different one. It is easier to run away from a small tyranny, a local tyranny, than a national tyranny. If people don't like the rule in a state, they can vote with their feet and more. But if it is one size fits all, if every congressional enactment or Supreme Court decision establishes a single rule for every American in every community, then the stakes are very high and very intense as to what that rule is. And when you take controversial issues about which there are passionate views on both sides, such as abortion, and say, we're going to have one rule nationwide it is a recipe for bitter conflict over that rule. And when that rule must govern widely divergent communities, the conflict is between combatants who often do not even comprehend their opponents' viewpoints. The result is our current acrimonious politics. And because the rule that results from these struggles are then imposed from outside by a remote central government, they further undercut a sense of community and give rise to alienation. In short, we have lost the idea of diversity in this country, real diversity, where communities can coexist and adopt different approaches to things. That too erodes an important check on despotism. Now finally, let me turn to freedom of the press. In addition to religion and the decentralization of power, the free press was an institution that Tocqueville believed would serve as a check on the despotic tendencies of democracy. This was not because Tocqueville believed that the American press did a particularly good job elevating the public's understanding and discourse. On the contrary, he took a dimmer view. As he put it, quote, the characteristics of the American journalist consist in an open and coarse appeal to the passions of the populace, and he habitually abandons the principles of political science to assail the characters of individuals to track them into private life and disclose all their weaknesses and errors. Tocqueville's view was that a free press did not so much perform a positive good when it came to resisting the development of tyranny in our society as preventing an evil. And it achieved this precisely because 
It was highly fragmented and reflected a wide diversity of voices. In that sense, a free and diverse press provided a form of decentralization that as long as it remained diverse, made it very difficult to galvanize a national consolidated majority. In 19th century America, the press was so fragmented that the power of any one organ was very small. The multiplicity of newspapers, even in one city, cultivated a wide variety of views and localized opinions. Tocqueville contrasted this to the situation he saw in Europe, where news outlets were consolidated in major urban centers such that a few voices were capable of influencing the opinions of the entire country. When the diverse organs of the press begin, as he said, to advance along the same track, their influence becomes almost irresistible in the long term. The public opinion, struck always from the same side, ends up yielding under the blows. Today in the United States, the corporate or mainstream press is massively consolidated, and it has become remarkably monolithic in viewpoint at the same time that an increasing number of journalists see themselves less as objective reporters of the facts and more as agents of change. These developments have given the press an unprecedented ability to mobilize a broad segment of the public on a national scale and direct that opinion in a particular direction. When the entire press advances along the same track, as Tocqueville put it, the relationship between the press and the energized majority becomes mutually reinforcing. Not only does it become easier for the press to mobilize a majority, but the mobilized majority becomes more powerful and overweening with the press as its ally. This is not a positive cycle. And I think it is fair to say that it puts the press's role as a breakwater for tyranny of the majority in jeopardy. The key to restoring the press in that vital role is to cultivate a greater diversity of voices in the media. And that is where you come in. You were one of the last holdouts in the consolidation of the organs and viewpoints of the press. It is therefore essential that you continue your work and continue to supply the people with diverse, divergent perspectives on the news and issues of the day. And in this secular age, it is especially vital that our religious perspective is voiced. So where does that leave us? It might not seem like it, but I'm actually an optimist. <laughs> And I believe that identifying the problem is the first step in correcting it. Our nation's greatest days lie ahead, but only if we can alter our course and pay heed to the lessons of the past. This means fostering a culture that is truly pluralistic. 
It means all viewpoints must be treated fairly, not simply the viewpoints favored by our cultural elites. And it especially means giving our respect to religion as a vital pillar of our society. Religion is something we should celebrate, not disparage. This also means working to devolve democratic choice to the lowest possible level. While the wizards in Washington might think they know best, the reality is that there is no unified best for every community and every person in our country. The solution to social ills is not to exhaust ourselves devising the perfect rule for everyone. It is to let our communities, our villages, our cities, our states set the rules for their communities. That allows people with principled disagreements who know each other to peaceably coexist and prevents politics from becoming a zero-sum game nationwide. And finally, this means encouraging diverse voices to speak out, whether on television, over the radio, or in print. When Tocqueville visited America, there was, as he said, scarcely a hamlet which has not its own newspaper. We need not get back to that, but we do need to support local journalism, local voices, and each of you needs to continue the great work that you are doing. In sum, your voices and your perspectives are essential to reversing the different trends that I have discussed today. I look forward to working together to restore the separate spheres that have long sustained our society. It is not too late to stem the tide, but we need to get to work and we need to work together. Thank you for the opportunity of speaking with you this afternoon. God bless you all and God bless the United States. U.S. Attorney General William Barr recorded in late February 2020 in Nashville, Tennessee, at the annual convention of NRB, National Religious Broadcasters. You may have heard Mr. Barr reference an earlier speech he gave at the University of Notre Dame. If you'd like to hear that address, you'll find it in Episode 2 of the Notable Speeches podcast, released on December 6, 2019. We welcome your comments and suggestions. Send us an email, feedback at notablespeeches.com. For a heads up on newly released episodes, follow us on Twitter at Notable Speeches. And of course, you'll get new episodes automatically if you subscribe using the podcast app you prefer. Or if you'd rather listen via the web, you can do that at NotableSpeeches.com. We're grateful to have you as a listener. Thanks so much. I'm Joseph Slough.